that better? All right. Jude 1, 1.9, Jude 1.14 and 15. The first is understood to be a quotation from either the Assumption of Moses or the Testament of Moses, both of which are extra-biblical literature. And the second one is understood to be a quotation from the Book of Enoch. What potential tensions does that raise for us? Uh, what should our perspective be on those books if Jude is in fact quoting from them in a way that he seems to be saying what they said, in this case at least, was true? Jared? Any other thought? Bob? Just, I mean, I guess kind of along the same lines, doesn't have to be inspired text to be historic. Okay. A brief statement on how the canon came to be. Or let's think about that briefly. Why do we have 66 books in the Bible and not 69 or 102 or something like that? Okay, and I would, I would argue instead of decided, I would say, I would use the word recognized. Just because I feel like the authority needs to be seen that it's God's authority and, and things that are in the books themselves, not just people's opinions about them. What were some of the tests, though, that they used to evaluate whether books were... The Old Testament, there really wasn't much dispute because there was pretty commonly accepted these are the books of the Old Testament. But for the New Testament, what were the criteria that they used? Anyone familiar with those for saying this book is part of the New Testament, this one is not? Okay, I think the way that I've typically heard it, something like an apostle or close associate of an apostle. Example would be Paul was considered an apostle, wrote a large section of the Bible. Uh, Luke was not an apostle, but was closely associated with Paul and potentially with Peter and some of the others. Same thing with Mark. Mark would not have been an apostle, but would have derived his information from Peter and would have had some contact with Paul as well. Uh, the one book of the New Testament about which there's probably the largest question of who wrote it is probably the book of Hebrews, but certainly the book of Hebrews would fall into the next category of things, which would be that there would be a unity of difference in style, but unity of message across the books of the Bible. There's, a, there's an understanding that Scripture is an entire unit, and even though there may be passages that say things that require thought to think about how they can fit together, there's not a contradiction between the books of the Bible. Um, those are the two main ones. I feel like there's maybe a couple of other less important criteria that were used. Uh, certainly if there was something that came along five, six hundred years after those initial books, there's a, there's a significant question as to its truth or authenticity, right? Because usually by that point it was someone claiming the name of an apostle 
but not actually being the works of the apostle. What about the apocryphal literature, which kind of concerns what we're looking at here? Books that were written in what we would call the intertestamental period between uh, the exile of the Israelites and their subsequent return and the ministry of Christ. There's a period of roughly 400 years. What about literature that came in that time period? Why would we not consider that to be part of the canon? There are some churches that would, but why would we not consider that to be the case? Okay. 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 All right. Right. Or internal contradictions in a few cases, if I remember correctly. And so those were some of the main reasons. They disagreed with the message of Scripture. Sometimes they disagreed among themselves. Historical inaccuracies, other things. Um, if you remember back to Deuteronomy, the test of a prophet was what he said had to be true. And in these cases, they were not true. They were contradictory or um, sometimes wildly exaggerated language. Just as an aside, um, there were a large number of strange ideas floating around, connected with apocryphal books, connected with various heresies that were splinter groups off of Christianity. Those groups tended to get wander out into the desert. Those were the groups that Muhammad encountered and formed the basis of some of the less easily explained ideas in the Quran. Uh, like the idea that some, and I don't know as much currently, but initially some Muslims had the idea that, that uh, Christians worship God the Father, God the Son, and Mary. Well, that would have been connected with some of these sort of fringe or heretical groups, um, which was a later development after what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree with what Jared said earlier, which was, I mean, Paul, for example, in Acts, quotes from pagan poets, Greek poets. In the instant of what they said, it coincided with biblical truth. You know, the joke is a stopped clock is right twice a day, right? So sometimes even people who have rejected God still agree with truth based on conscience or fragments of God's revelation that they have access to. Do you have policy? Yeah. So I think what we would say is, in these instances, these things that he quoted were true. The rest of the books are not automatically true simply because he quoted from them. Uh, so that's the first one there. All right, let's go on to the next one. Uh, just a quick application of that. Along those lines, both the example of Paul and the example of Jude in this book, it would be perhaps valid for us in the context of our culture to make allusions to statements that people who are not Christians have made that support the truth of what the Bible says. What I'm not saying is those people who, you know, I mean, this is a, an old thing now, but there was for a while, there were people who were saying, find the gospel in the story of the Matrix. Well, that was written by a couple of people who live very anti-Christian lifestyles, 
and have no desire for following God. And so to try to say the gospel is in it is grasping at straws. But there are people who, while not acknowledging the God of the Bible, recognize that some of the extra-biblical ideas that people have don't make any sense. It would perhaps be valid to have discussions about those things with people with a goal to always leading people back to the scriptures. Because we're not saying that these things... The Bible is true because these people agree with it. We're just saying the Bible is true and these people agree with it because deep down all of us know that it's true. And something along those lines. All right, number seven. Uh, in verse 10, what are the things which they do not understand and by which they are destroyed? Okay. I think so. Uh, I think basically you'd be saying the beginning of verse 10, spiritual things, right? They don't understand spiritual things. They profess to be wise. Paul will say in Timothy, warning against false teachers, they claim to understand the law, but they don't follow it. Kind of like the Pharisees who say, we're not going to do certain things on this day because that would be wrong. Let's kill Paul the next day. You know, this, just this insane contradiction between we want to uphold the, the letter of what God has written while having no desire to really follow them in our hearts. So they don't get spiritual things. They speak evil of them, particularly actual spiritual beings. Verse 8, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. So they don't understand the position that angels hold in terms of their greater power compared to themselves as the false teachers, but they speak evil of them. What is the thing that they get destroyed by? Verse 10, in the second half of it. I think that last one probably hits the closest to it. It says the things they know by instinct. How many of you have had a pet? What does the pet want? Food. I mean, when you boil it down, uh, whether you're talking a snake, a cat, a dog, a squirrel, or whatever, it wants food. It doesn't want food because it loves you. Now, animals can form attachments to us. I'm not, I'm not denying that. But the animal wants food because that's its instinct. If it doesn't get food, it'll die. So God has given them the instinct to seek out food. These people are, are behaving at the very most basic levels. They're being driven by their fleshly desires. And what does God say? What group of people does God say is characterized by living according to the lust of the flesh, the desires of pagans? People who don't know God. So these false teachers would claim to be those who know God the best, but they don't really get anything about the spiritual side of things. Instead, they're driven primarily by the physical side of things, all of their impulses and desires, just like, just like an animal seeking out food and water and those basic needs, but not really understanding why it does it. So, number eight. When it talks about the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah, what does he mean by those phrases? I mean, the way of Cain's probably more familiar to us than the other two. What was the way of Cain? Okay, unbelief. Well, most people would, 
uh, our initial thought might be to look at that and say, well, Cain murdered his brother, and so that's the specific sin that he has in mind. But the bigger issue was Cain's unbelief and his fact that he was going to do his own thing instead of what God wanted him to do. And that's what characterizes them as well. Uh, the error of Balaam. Um, turn over to Numbers 22, just to give us some context for this, because we're... Balak tried to get him to curse the Jews. Right, yep. And so, um, let's see. Uh, someone want to read Numbers 22, 2 through 6? Uh, 2 through 7? Okay, Paul. Um, that's fine. So they come to Balaam. They say, here's money. Come curse this people. Interesting fact in light of what we looked at with Lot. Where did the Moabites come from? Okay. Yeah, but, but they're Lot's descendants, right? And now they're afraid that the Israelites are going to come after them. And so we see this... Um, this conflict that comes up several times in the Old Testament between the results of Lot's sinful life and God's blessing of the people of Israel. Just a, a quick aside in light of what we've been going through in Genesis. We have to ask ourselves, what was the sin of Balaam? Because as you go through the chapter, Balaam says, all right, let me think about it a little bit if I should curse the people that God has promised to bless. So spend the night and I'll ask God if it's okay to curse the people he's promised to bless. God says no. Uh, Balaam says, well... Maybe God will change his mind, so let me keep asking him again. And God says, no. Finally, God says to Balaam, go with them. And so Balaam goes, and then we have the story with the donkey speaking to him. And because the, the donkey sees the angel standing in the road ready to strike Balaam, and then eventually the end result is Balaam ends up with them, ends up speaking a blessing instead of a curse. Then we have, uh, this goes through chapter 23 to 24, Balak is angry with him. Uh, Balaam continues to bless the people of Israel three times. And then he says, go back to your place. And then he basically says, all of these other peoples are going to be destroyed. So Balaam ends up somewhat unwillingly becoming, being a prophet for truth, even though he would much rather, uh, for money, do what was evil. The implication... Because chapter 25 and verse 1 says, When Israel remained at Shittim, which is the wilderness, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. 
It's not explicitly stated in the text, but later allusions would indicate that Balaam had something to do with this sin of the people of Israel. As a result, the thing that, that Jude is probably tying together here is both Balaam's love of money and his willingness to try to come up with new and creative schemes to lead the people of Israel into sin, even though God wouldn't let him come out and curse them. How does that compare to the false teachers that we're looking at in Jude? How does that compare to what we know of false teachers in general? Okay, good. They're driven by greed. Why do you think Paul wouldn't let the churches pay him, even though he had a right as an apostle to be supported in his ministry? Okay, what else? Okay, good. We were just going, I was just teaching through First uh, Thessalonians, and Paul says, when I was with you, I worked night and day so that I wasn't be a burden to you. I wanted to make it very clear that I was in this for the gospel and for God and for your benefit, not for my own benefit. And in contrast, that's one of the marks of a false teacher I think we should see from this passage is not only do they choose their way over God's way, they are greedy. And so, point of application. It is easy for us to be greedy. We live in a world... And I'm not saying anyone who's involved in any kind of advertising is sinful, but a lot of advertising promotes greed in us, right? You will be happy if you have blank. You'll not be more happy if you have the $10 brand of deodorant than the $1 brand of deodorant. You thought I was going to say a nice car, right? Maybe, maybe. Um, you will not be more happy if you have... Other people will be more happy if you use one of the two. right? Uh, you will not be more happy in terms of a lasting sense if you buy the name brand garlic bread instead of the off-brand garlic bread. Because I did that this week and they were pretty much the same. Some things there are difference. We're not going to go into all of that. But there is a, a pull, a temptation to greed, pursue, consume, acquire, and it's a false promise. But that is the stock and trade of a false teacher. So we've got to watch out for that. Um, perished in the rebellion of Korah. Interestingly, if you're still there in Numbers 22, Numbers 16 is the story of the rebellion of Korah, which happened before the story of Balaam. Um, uh, someone read Numbers 16, uh, 27 to 35, please. You can read that for us. Uh, to 35, please.
So what does it mean they perished in the rebellion of Korah? But the false teachers that Paul or that Jude's talking about, this is long after. So what's the parallel Jude's making? Okay. So worshiping the true God in the wrong way, I would probably say. But I agree with you, Jared. Do you have something else too? Okay. I think all those things tie into it. So I think. The main thing that Jude is emphasizing is that their judgment is certain because he's saying in the past tense they perished in the judgment of Korah, which happened chronologically a thousand years before. And so um, he's saying if they continue in this path, their judgment is so certain I can say that it's already happened. So that's the main point that he's making. But when we draw a parallel between the reason for that judgment, as Paul pointed out, it had to do with their offering strange fire. Bob was talking about their uh, false worship practices. Think about the horror of this story. The ringleaders were Korah and Dathan and Abram. It wasn't just them that died. It was everyone connected with them. The ground just opened up in their part of the camp and dumped them down and closed back over them. Then there's these 250 men that they had stirred up to do things the wrong way. God sent fire, burned them up where they stood, and the things that they had incense in dropped to the ground. They melted them down and put them as a covering around the altar as a reminder of the people of Israel of what had happened. That's a sober warning against being or allying yourself or following after a false teacher. So, um, as it says in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, these things were written so that we might learn from their examples. And I think it's pretty clear from this story what God's attitude was toward those who would reject his word, both by rejecting the authority of Moses and when he clearly said, this is the way you need to do it, they said, well, we, can offer, we can do it this way instead. So, um, that's certainly something for us to keep in mind with, in connection with all these things. Turning back to Jude, he describes these men in 12 and 13 as hidden reefs, clouds without water, autumn trees without fruit, wild waves of the sea, wandering stars. What does he mean by these pictures? Huh? Dangerous in that you don't know that they're there until it's too late for the first one. And that I was thinking useless for the clouds. Okay. Good. Any other thoughts? Okay. So, um, it, love feast would have been the context of either the observance of the Lord's table or the time of fellowship immediately before it, based on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And it's as though the fellow Christians are ships and these people are pretending like everything is fine and they're like reefs that are going to rip out the bottom of the ship and cause it to shipwreck. And people don't even know it because they're outwardly appearing to be just like everyone else. Uh, and they are both without fear, which I think is a sign of their pride, and caring for themselves, which is a sign of their selfishness. What about the clouds without water? Think of that in the context of Israel where you needed rain. It tends to be a fairly dry climate. 
How would you feel about a cloud without water? Yeah. And some of the false teachers that you will encounter say the nicest things, wear the nicest clothes, seem like really great people with great personalities, and they are lying, and they hate God, and they want to destroy your soul. And Paul, or Jude says, watch out for them. Uh, autumn trees without fruit. I mean, it, it's basically, here's autumn trees without fruit. They haven't had fruit, so it's worthless or dead in that sense. It's doubly dead because now it's ripped out of the ground and laying on the ground, and it's not going to produce fruit anymore either, but that's a sign of judgment. Wild waves of the sea, I think about, we used to go uh, up to kind of the tip of the thumb, and certain times you would go out and the, the lake had sort of washed up all the muck. That's a picture that, that Jude is using here. And then the wandering stars, uh, commentators generally agree that they would see this as either um, comets or planets whose orbits were erratic, as in we can't, they're, they're not on a predictable course, and so as a result, not to be, um, not to be trusted, and from their perspective, observing on Earth, would enter into the darkness and they wouldn't see them for a long time as kind of a sign of judgment. Okay. Did you have a question or that? Okay. And that could be part of it too. Sure. Um, what, does, what does God say the end is of people who are false teachers and behave in this way? Especially in verse 15. Yeah. Notice how many times it says ungodly in verse 15. In contrast, God is going to execute judgment on them. Um, the, the end of verse 15 is interesting in light of what Jesus said about your words, you will be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. I think if we're living sinfully, we feel like no one's going to call us into account for any of the things that we say. And this verse would argue against that, that God hears every one of those words. And particularly when they are in rejection of the Son, He's not going to just ignore it. Uh, if God judges the wicked... Does that mean deliverance for the righteous, or when God delivers the righteous, does that automatically mean judgment for the wicked? Can you have one without the other, or are they usually connected in Scripture, I guess is my question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's other passages where they coincide, like 2 Thessalonians 1 some of the passages in Revelation, several of the passages in the prophets where there's this idea where God is going to come in judgment on his enemies and the result of that is the deliverance of his people. And so even though it's not the main point, the fact that God is coming in judgment should be a point of confidence for us because it means that the truth is being vindicated by the only one who can really say, this is true, you were wrong, and here's the consequences.
So the last question, number 12. Uh, well, let's just talk briefly about number 16. It's not one of the questions. When it says that they are grumblers finding fault, does that remind you of anything earlier in Scripture? Who were grumblers and fault finders earlier in Scripture? Israelites. God's own people, which should be a warning to us about false teachers, that we are not immune to the dangers of false teaching either. either uh, like, like we would tend to think false teaching would only come out of people who have no connection or no awareness of God. But in the fact that they're grumblers finding fault, probably supposed to remind us of how the Israelites are that way. Following after their own lusts would go back to like 1 John 2 where it says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And also going back to verse 10, they're destroyed by the things they know by instinct. And along these lines, the point of the grumbling, how often do you complain? Doesn't automatically mean you're a false teacher, but Jude does say this is one of the things that characterizes them. And so at the very least, if it characterizes them, it's something we should not want to be characterized by. So if somebody says, I'm thinking of so-and-so, and you fill in the blank with your name, would they say this person is a grumbler? If they do, that's something that needs to change because this is the sign of people that God condemns. If it is following after their own desires, it's easy for us to live according to, I want to do whatever, and so that's the thing I'm going to do. Part of growing up, part of following God, is realizing that there are things that are right that I may not want to do that must happen here and now, and I'm going to do those things because it pleases God. And hopefully in time, our desires become more lined up with what we're supposed to do. But in the beginning, that can be very hard because I may really want to do something and it's not the right thing. And I may really not want to do something else, but it is the right thing to do. So let me ask the kids this for a second. What are some things that you know please God but that can be really hard to do? Okay. Give me an example. Okay. All right. What else? What are some other things that you know are good things to do but might be really hard to do? Yeah. Sharing your ice cream. I feel like there's a backstory to that. <laughs> One of the other kids, what's something that's hard to do, but that God wants you to do and you should do it, instead of doing the thing that you want, which could be wrong? Yes, sir. Okay. Why do we sometimes not want to be honest? Okay. Good. Might be afraid we'll get in trouble, lots of different reasons. Anything else? What are some other things that God wants us to do but that can be hard to do? Yes. Okay. Love our siblings or to love people in general. We love ourselves. We're really good at that. But loving other people can be hard for us. Okay. Good. All right. And then the last phrase that describes them, they speak arrogantly or boastfully, 
flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. What's the difference between flattering someone and just being nice to them? Braden? Okay, good. It's dishonest, and the goal is to, oh, sorry, what's that? To get them to do something. It's manipulative and it's dishonest. So that is a characteristic of false teachers that we need to watch out for. So we've gone through all these characteristics in verses 4, 8, 10, 16, and so on. Can you all think of any examples of people that would fall into the category of false teachers today? Okay. Okay. And why is it false teaching to only talk about good things connected with Christianity? Right. We're saying less than what God has said. Okay. Okay. Good. Who are other examples of false teachers that come to mind? Sure. Yeah. So, Benny Hinn, okay. The Pope. Okay, what, what's T.D. Jakes' issue? Okay. 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 Good. Uh, what was some of the other ones? Someone else had another one. Thought I heard, maybe not. Okay, yeah. Okay. And those are the ones that are easier to spot. Are there potentially false teachers or elements of false teaching? Um, I guess we could say closer to home. I didn't mean that. No. Um, I, I yes. Okay. So that would be a kind of an admonition for us to be discerning when we're reading things. Like we might think this is in a not that there's hardly any left, but this is in a Christian bookstore, so it must be a good book. That would be a dangerous thing to assume. Um, what are other ways that we can encounter false teaching? Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Anything else then? Yes. Okay. And one of the things we have to watch out for that is a lot of times we start to wonder what's really the difference between them and us because they seem like really nice people. Paul? Okay. Good. Yeah. Here.
Yeah. So, Jude said at the beginning that he was urging his readers to contend for the faith that was once delivered. What does that look like for you in your daily life? Because you don't know Benny Hinn, and so you saying, I'm not going to listen to him, doesn't affect him at all. I'm not saying we should then support his ministry. I'm just saying, what does it look like on a daily basis, Jonathan? Yeah. Keep pointing people to the Bible. What else? Okay. Good. So somebody, and I don't know if this is 100% accurate, but when I was younger, I was told that when people are trying to spot counterfeit money, they don't go look at all the kinds of counterfeit money that there is. They look at the one that is the real one. And if you know the real one, then you can see the false ones more easily. And so some people think that the way to uh, reject false teaching, and I'm not saying it's wrong to uh, have a general outline of what different world religions teach, but you can't know exhaustively every little difference between every subdivision of every false teaching. You can know what the Bible says, and then someone says this thing, and you say, wait, that's not in the Bible. That's what God wants us to focus and concentrate on. Yes. Along those lines, I think it's important to remember uh, there are examples of theologians who are good in their early years or in their later years and not at other points. And so we need to be careful about making assumptions, but we also need to be wise. Yes. I mentioned in Sunday school this morning that there was an older Christian lady that I had opportunity to do Bible study with. One of the hardest things from my side of things is if one of you is like, I just heard this great thing, and you start telling me about it, and, and I say, maybe they don't know about all these other things connected with that idea or that person or that book. 
it's really hard for me to say, but I'm pretty sure the Bible says this, or I know the Bible says this. There's a part of me that, that, that doesn't want to dampen your enthusiasm, but we can't ignore the truth just because it might hurt someone's feelings. And same thing going the other direction. You know, if, if I say something and you say, you know, I don't think that lines up with that passage of Scripture, I mean, we need to have a, an, a, 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 a reasonable conversation, not like standing in the hallway yelling at each other, but we should talk about it too. Yes. that's always a challenge. I mean, there's been times when people that I know are unbelievers have died, and uh, I'd, I'd probably, I probably wouldn't go to, like, uh, not that they would invite me to this, but I probably wouldn't do a prayer at a Mass just to have a chance to do the prayer at the Mass. But if it was just going to be like a pagan celebration, like, let's all go to this place and remember so-and-so, but there's an opportunity there to present the Gospel, I mean, you've got to have wisdom about those things, because you know, we want to not muddy the gospel as we try to present the gospel. And so, yeah, that's uh, definitely something to keep in mind. How can we, both those of you who have kids currently and those of you who are older believers in the church, how can we all help the kids of our church to watch out for false teachers? I would add into that the role that many of you can have in being godly examples for them. 
those of you who've been Christians for a long time, part of the protecting against false teachers is the testimony of people who've followed Christ for a number of years. And um, we might not think, we might, we might at first glance think that it's kind of sad or foolish if someone who's in their 50s or 60s decides to um, sort of wander off and, and stray into error. But it can also be extremely damaging, not just, it doesn't just affect you, I guess is the point that I'm trying to make. It can be extremely damaging to all those who are watching you. And our highest motivation should be to keep following God because it honors God. But we should also consider the effect that it has on other people as well. Yes? Any final thoughts from this uh, section as we wrap up now? Sobering thing to look at, but I think something that we should consider seriously because the downsides, the consequences of giving in to false teaching or promoting false teaching are severe. God's judgment is on those who are false teachers and those who get caught up in false teaching and the benefits of Contending for the faith are huge. God can work great things for His glory through us. So. All right, let's pray, and then we will sing our final hymn together. Lord, this is a, a passage of Scripture that should provoke much thought, many illusions, many uh, ideas to sort of unpack. I pray that you would help us to continue to think about these things, adults, children, all of us, about... Uh, knowing what is true, hanging on to what's true, fighting for what's true against those who would corrupt your truth, who are characterized by living in sinful ways, that we would ask ourselves, am I living in any of those sinful ways? Help me to change. And that we would ask ourselves, am I believing any of those false things? And that we would instead believe what is true. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.